Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strink. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. We all know that laboratory quality control is important to get the most accurate results for our patients. But what if there was a way to do this better, to get even more accurate results, and to reduce costs? My guest today is Zoe Brooks, an advanced registered technologist in Canada and the founder of Awesome Numbers, Inc. Today, we're going to talk about Zoe's career path and how she became interested in quality control and how the software she's developed just might change the way we do QC. All right, here's Zoe Brooks. All right, I want to go all the way back to the beginning and talk about how you got interested in the medical laboratory field, because I found that a lot of people especially nowadays, like they don't hear about this field and, and then someone tells them about it or they hear about it like, like, like by accident or something. So how did that happen for you? It was an aptitude test in about grade 11 in a three-room high school. I grew up in a very small, very small town of like 300 people. Okay. And uh, they did at that time, they did aptitude tests. I don't I don't think they do it for kids anymore, which is silly, but they said, you know, you, you should be either a lab technologist or a prospector. And I thought getting a mule and wandering around the hillsides didn't sound too appealing. So I would check <laughs> out lab technology. <laughs> that's, that's really a wide range there. Wow. Yes, I know. Well, I'm, I, I, I exercise both sides of my brain. <laughs> that's good. That's good. Okay. Now, I noticed in, in your, uh, your bio, it says you're an advanced registered technologist. So what does this mean? How, how is this different from a, a medical technologist or is it or is it the same thing? No, it's not. It's uh, that, at that time, I, it was a two year program to graduate as a medical technologist. But in Canada, there was the advanced registered technologist degree. And for that, you had to do a literature review. You had to do a written exam in four topics, one of which was management. And my other three were chemistry, blood bank and microbiology. And it was a lot of sort of on your own learning and you sort of created a thesis then there was an oral exam that you went to to graduate okay and of those i think you said four those four areas that you mentioned which of those did you like the most Oh, the management for sure. But I used all of them. I went on to work in a 50-bed hospital where I was in charge of blood bank and, and brought in the microbiology lab. And we did chemistry, of course. And there I got to learn a lot more about management. With a whole three years experience, I became a department head. At that time, you know, people were scarce. And although I technically didn't have the qualifications for it, I was the best person at the time. So I got to learn a lot very early about management, dealing with people. And in that position, of course, quality control was part of my duty. Well, let's let's talk about the quality control part, because this this later became like the entire focus of your work. Uh, well, how did, how did that start then? How did that become sort of, you know, because most people, when they think of quality control, it's just something you have to do, you know, to pass inspections and things. But it seems like for you, it, it became something that you wanted to do. So how did how did that begin? It it started with a natural fascination for mathematics. I, I really enjoy math. And then looking at the quality control charts, of course, we learned very little as we probably learned the same that most techs do right now. Quality control is very, very poorly taught at the entry level. You learned how to calculate a mean, how to calculate an SD, and how to make a QC chart. But then I started watching those QC charts. I was working in a lab, and I was looking at the prothrombin time results. And I thought, at that time, we're doing tilt tubes. So you've got to see the clot in order to call the result complete. So you would actually put the patient sample in a test tube in a water bath, and you would tilt the tubes up and down until you saw a clot form. <laughs> 
And I remember once looking at the QC chart and saying, look at that. You can tell who worked the weekend just by looking at the QC chart because you get these two dots way down low from somebody who would notice the, the clot really quickly and other ones way up high. And nobody was thinking, what does it mean to the patients? And then I went on to work at another larger hospital and I would say, you know, look at that. Those, you know, I said, remember saying to the, the lab manager or department head, look at all those points are climbing higher. He said, well, don't worry about that. We'll have a new mean next month and it, it won't be a problem. I thought, this doesn't make sense what they're doing. So, you know, seeing it actually happen, I could see in the days in that small 50-bed hospital, we went from plastic-tipped um, pipettes to glass-tipped, and you could see the standard deviation narrow in on the QC chart. So it was part of my everyday life. It was my duty to ensure good quality. And I tell you, being raised by a, a British mother, you know, you did your duty. If it was your duty to ensure good quality, you did it. So I took it very seriously, but I enjoyed the, the logic and the mathematics of it. And we also brought the first early QC program on computer into the lab before I left that 50-bed hospital. Yeah, I want to talk about that because this was, I mean, this was back in 1987, I think I read. Is that right? It was 84 that I left the, the small hospital. I spent a few months as a lab license inspector. And that was another eye-opener in quality control. I remember going into the lab and their potassium was run during the day on one instrument where the control got a a, a value, the high control was 5.5. And at night, they ran it on a different instrument where the high control dropped down to 5.0. And nobody thought, what does that mean to your patients? So I went from Port Perry, the small place, to a lab license inspector, to a hospital in Toronto where my main focus was quality control, and again brought in computerized QC for people. And then one day my, my husband looked in the paper and said, oh God, there's a Zoe wanted in Sudbury. And this is near my hometown. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and it was to be a technical coordinator for six small hospitals in the far north. Well, I, I love the north. I love quality control. This job was made for me. And curiously, they had advertised before but weren't happy with the people who had applied. And they advertised again when I saw it. And I got the job to do it, and it, it. I just never looked back. It was they. They had planned an electric typewriter for this technical coordinator. I brought in my own computer. I brought in computers to the labs up there. We held telemedicine um, education on how to use a computer, how to use DOS. I remember the teacher saying, you organize your computer just like you organize a file cabinet. And my secretary and I, who were both computer nerds, looked at each other and said, oh, my God, that's how to organize our file cabinet. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. So what, what kind of computers were these? These were DOS-based, like 486s. I remember when oh, one wow. fellow... Yeah, one fellow got a computer with one gig hard drive, and we thought, my goodness, how extravagant. You'd never know, need anything as big as that. Mm -hmm. wow. So yeah. I started, I'd carry floppy disks back. These, these places, these hospitals were three hours north of me. They had from two to five technologists in the hospital. There was no clinical chemist. Fortunately, there was a very forward-thinking pathologist. He was an anatomical pathologist, but he was also very interested in quality control, computers, etc. And he was the, the lab director for these five or six labs. And then I went up and visited each lab once a month. 
we needed a way for them to make good decisions while I wasn't there. So at that time, I started, I would pick up floppy disks and bring them back to my office and I could see what was on their computers. The internet, we were using the internet before we even knew what it was. We had an FTP server that they would send their files to. So every week I would look at every single QC result from each one of the labs and you had to print it out on a dot matrix printer because the software we were using if you went live in the software it only showed you the good data it assumed if there was anything bad you'd stopped and fixed it so the only way i could see if anything was wrong was to print out this huge stack from a dot matrix printer every week and look at it and call them and see what they were doing And then eventually I developed a software program. There was a government program out encouraging hospitals to work with private enterprise. And we put forward a proposal with a small LIS company that we brought into these tiny hospitals to develop software programs and starting with um, quality control. So I was able to get some expertise and some training and develop this QC program. So they would run their QC. And if everything was good, it said, don't worry, be happy. And if it was bad, it said, call Zoe. (laughs) All right. So it sounds like you were probably decades before your time with all of this stuff. I mean, you're talking about telemedicine. You're talking about you know, remote with the FTP server, you're talking about like remote access to files. I mean, even what were you using for like a spreadsheet software? Because this was years before Microsoft Excel. No, I, well, I was, I, it might've been Excel. It might've been the, I think it was Excel, but it may have been the counterpart to, um, uh, word perfect. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay, going back that long, I, I I cut my teeth on a Commodore 64, and uh, that yeah. Commodore 64 would do data processing, it would do calculations, it would do what Word does now, it would do your editing, but everything, oh my goodness, in those days, when I was at the Toronto hospital, like you had to format your own floppy disks. So I got a call from, I was the technical director and there was a a lab manager as well he said suddenly the computer won't do anything i said well what'd you do he said well i format i formatted a floppy drive i said did you put in format a colon he said no i just wrote format and if you did that it reformatted your whole hard drive and you had to start from scratch oh boy okay oh yeah Uh, all right so then a couple, a couple of things. So you mentioned earlier your kind of interest in mathematics, and now we're talking about the computer programming part of that. How how did you learn these things? Because again, like we're talking about in the eighties, I remember learning a little bit of computer programming then, but it wasn't like you know there was no YouTube, there was no like like maybe you could go to the library and get a book about it. Maybe how, how did you learn this stuff? Uh, trial and error. I just played with it. Um, you know, my my theory of computers is you push buttons till it does what you want. And if you're not crashing it every, every so often, you're not pushing enough buttons. So it was just, you know, work with it, try with it, see what it would do. I would take formulas and I would take them I because I'm, 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 I'm not book learned in either computers or statistics. So I have to make sure they work. I have to model them. I have to take each piece of the statistical formula apart and be able to change each variable and see what it does, because I've got to be very sure what I'm doing. So it's it's all sort of self, self-learning and experimentation and proving that if I change this number, that will be the outcome. Now, how did this go over with kind of management and even like hospital administration? This must be, these must be things they had never seen before. It it was, and they they loved it. Um, those six hospitals before I went there, unbeen they didn't tell me before I took the job. They had all been declared non proficient and non remediable 
by our proficiency testing program that had started in the mid-70s. So they had a problem on their hands. Within two years, I went in, I said, if the QC is okay, the patients will be okay, and the proficiency testing will be okay. So we said, give us a few months to get the QC okay. And in order to know if the QC is okay, you have to compare what you've got to a standard. The only standard available at that time was Tonks Allowable Limits of Error that were written in the 60s, I think. And they said your total error should no, be no more than one quarter the span of the reference range divided by the mean of the reference range. So this was before CLIA, before anything like that. And I started monitoring that improving them and the administration we would prepare quarterly and annual reports that told them your lab tested x samples y samples were okay here's what we're doing to fix the others so we went within a few years from being non-proficient and non-remediable we were getting seven to nine letters a month that I had to answer to the proficiency people to going a full year without a single letter of concern. And it became the only time that the province sent out the director of lab licensing to see what's going right in this program. And it was amazing, Dennis. We took them into the lab. She spoke to the, the administrators. She spoke to the chief techs, she spoke to the bench techs, and every single one of them said, it works because of what I do. And I thought that was just, you know, the most perfect description of how a program should work. Mm -hmm. Okay, so then after this kind of success, I mean, you must have gotten a, a bit of a reputation as someone who could fix these kind of things, right? Well... <laughs> also a bit of a reputation as, as a troubleshooter or as a problem as as a troublemaker i okay. uh, i i called up my local hospital one time i had some tests that were being done regularly and i was creating a model uh where you combine the qc and the patient biological variation and i wondered if i could get the qc for the tests that were being done on myself and the clinical chemist, when I started talking, suddenly he started to stutter and you could just hear the man sweating. And he said, I, 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 I know who you are. You question Toronto. Uh, the only way you're going to get my QC records is with a court order. And, oh, wow. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You weren't supposed to question Toronto. I mean, we were doing things. I remember once we got a, a letter from our proficiency program. Explain to us why you're in the bottom 5% of results for TSHs. And we're like, well, we meet our, our goals. We meet the CLIA goals. If your objective is to have 100% of the province in the top 95%, you're never going to get there. You know, consider the fact that the whole province did well. So I asked tough questions. I, I've been fired three times for caring too much about quality. Oh, wow. Okay. Oh, yeah. It's, it's not been, you know, oh, wow, you can improve quality. Let's do this. Uh -huh. It's been more of, you want to improve quality? There's nothing wrong with my quality. Okay. Yeah, I see. Like, as long as the numbers show what they're supposed to show, then, then don't, don't kind of don't right. mess with it, I guess. Yes, yes. If nobody's complaining, don't mess with it. And don't be telling us we can do our quality better because we're us and we do the best. I see. Okay. All right. Yeah. How did Dr. James Westgard enter the picture? Because it, you sort of collaborated with him for, for a little while, at least. Yes, I did. I, I heard him speak in 1989 in Hamilton. And I went up to him at the at the break and asked if he would speak at our Canadian conference. And he said, well, sure, I speak at a lot of the American conferences. I don't see why not. Give me a call. 
So I waited a little while and I called him up. He picked up the phone and said, Westgard, and I almost fainted. And I went in and said to my trusty secretary, you know, my God, I just spoke to Westgard. And the next day I called him back and said, I talked to him and I said, you know, will you speak at Edward in Montreal the next year? And he, he said, yes. He said, but I'm working now on new theories and moving beyond the basics. And I said, oh, but, you know, we can't move beyond the basics until people understand the basics. And right now they don't understand them very well. So he said, well, you talk about the basics and I'll talk about the, the he was he was working on OPSPECs back then. And he would work on that. So I'm thinking, wow, I have a chance to do a full day workshop with Westgard. So the next day I phoned him back and I went into my trusty assistant and I said, I just been laughed at by Westgard. <laughs> and I said, well, why don't we, we've got a year to prepare for this session. You present the theory. And I'll show how we've applied the theory in all our labs. And he laughed at me and said, my, you are an optimist. But I thought, what's the point of having theories if theories can't be applied? Mm -hmm. So I, I got to visit his lab. I asked if he could visit his lab. And he arranged, he met me at the airport. He arranged this week or several days for me to sit on, on different things, to read different books, to, to meet with different people. Before I went down there, I read all of his work and, you know, I was a real absolute fan and did work with him. We actually created videos. I was working with myself and the pathologist I was working with. We created a company to sell educational videotapes. And we made some with Westgard and David Plout. That didn't take off too well either back then, but but we did sell some of them to teach people how to do quality control. You know, after working with Dr. Westgard, did you, or, or during that time, did you consider him a mentor? I mean, did he help develop kind of your your ideas about quality control? That's an interesting double question. Was he a mentor? Yes. Did he help develop my stuff? No. He was interested okay. in teaching his stuff. But, and I remember what he said in Montreal, you know, I developed the, the, the new theory and then I rely on people like Zoe to take it and run with it and do more things with it. So he wasn't terribly interested in working on new stuff that I was working on. And I okay. mean, I asked him, Every time I see him, sort of, you know, would you like to work together? But he's on his own path. And when it came to Sigma is when we really began to differ. Because we were working with critical systematic error at the time. And critical systematic error was how far your mean can move before 5% of results fail. And then along came Sigma, which was how far can the mean move before 50% of your results fail? And I could not see the advantage to that. We already had a better process. He was already using critical systematic error to, uh, to select QC rules. We used critical systematic error in our hospitals every month, every month to say, you know, is your, is this method doing okay? What QC rules do you need to use? So when he went to Sigma, everything sort of changed. This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Zoe Brooks. We'll be right back. Labvine is building a team to help lab medicine professionals live their best lives. Now, these are commission-based sales positions, and the only requirement is that you're passionate about helping people, especially laboratorians. I'll have a link in the show notes where you can email for more information or just watch the LabVine social media pages. Also, this month on LabVine, there are some great resources for managing laboratory finances. These topics include financial management, financial statements, budgets, controlling costs, and making financial decisions. And you can find these at LabVine by following the link in the show notes. Dress-A-Med has been designing and manufacturing high-quality scrubs since 1980. 
The prices are affordable, the shipping is very fast, and the scrubs have lots of pockets, which I really like. I actually have several sets of these myself. So check out Dress Ahmed by using the link in the show notes. You can sign up for their loyalty program for free and earn special offers and discounts. Now back to Zoe Brooks on the People of Pathology podcast. Okay, Dr. Westgard went, started working with Sigma? Started, started recommending Sigma. Okay. Just really by modifying how he used critical systematic error, he just added 1.65 to his critical systematic error and got a sigma value. But then calling it sigma and bringing along the trappings that go along with sigma did not work in the medical lab. Sigma has its basis in industry where they create millions and millions and millions of, of widgets a year. But you'd have to, if you're, if you're testing 100 samples a day, you'd have to go 27 years to create a million, Q, a million patient results. It just doesn't okay. make sense to use a metric that measures that way. See, that's interesting because, I, you know, when the whole Six Sigma thing became popular and everybody was what do you become like a black belt or something in it or whatever it's called and and it just became very popular throughout it seemed like all of healthcare and you're saying that it doesn't really apply not not within the medical lab if if you look at and i just read recently where motorola started where they came up with the six sigma concept they were sending out pagers without doing any quality control and 3.4 3.4 in a million would come back again. Mm-hmm. So they said, well, we have an error rate that would be equivalent to six sigma. And that's how it all began. But then they said, well, let's not call that. Like six sigma doesn't really produce 3.4 errors a year. 4.5 sigma does that. So they said, let's allow a 1.5 sigma shift. And what's what we measure as six sigma, we'll call 4.5, which is 3.4 errors a year. Well, then when you get down to three sigma, they'll tell you there are 67,000 errors per year. That's a 6.7% failure rate. And then people say three sigma is okay for the medical lab. You would never say a 6.7% failure rate is okay for the medical lab. But they teach people on one hand, three sigmas okay. On the other hand, three sigmas equal to 6.7%. But because we call it 67,000 per million, nobody even realizes that they're saying it's 6.7% failure. And most of your methods are producing less than 0.001% failure. It just, it fails the DIMS test. It doesn't make sense. That's interesting. I wonder then why why it became so popular. Um, it was, everybody was doing it in manufacturing. It became the way to manage quality. And if it's the way to manage quality, well, can we do it here? Well, sure, we can morph the mathematics. We can calculate the values. And we can tell people that three sigma is okay, but you don't tell them if it's below three sigma, stop, fix, do something about it. Three sigma never came with a stop sign where you could say if my critical systematic error is zero, you have nowhere to go. You have to stop and fix. Oh, well, it should be three sigma, but it's 2.5 and I'll do something about it maybe. It just, it didn't come with what you need to control medical quality. Mm, I see. That's, yeah, I guess there is, there is quite a bit of difference between live patients and Motorola pagers. Exactly. Exactly. It is a good way to measure, like it's, it's a reasonable way to measure error rates. You see, Sigma comes originally from measuring the number of failures in so many events. But that's not how we do it. We, we say, what's the true value? What's the mean value? What's the allowable error limit? What's the SD? And from this, we calculate a, a sigma and project the number of errors. 
They did it the opposite way. They counted the errors because they could count the errors. We can't count errors. You can't say that patient result was wrong because you've no way of knowing that. The doctor's not going to come back to you for every single result that's wrong. So okay. we have to project it from the QC, and then we theorize what the sigma may be, and then you run in all, into some more mathematical errors in the calculation of sigma. I see. Okay. So it it sounds like sigma should be used to maybe identify errors or error rate, and but you need something else to apply that, to, to correct it. Is that kind of what it, you're... Sigma works well in the pre-analytical phase where you can say, you know, X number of samples were spoiled in transit to the lab. And you know, you know, of the X million samples that came to the lab, 20 were, you know, 20 came in that had been overheated or frozen. You can calculate a sigma from that. But when you go into the analytical process... You go through, like, there's the pre-analytical phase, the analytical phase, and the post-analytical phase. In the analytical phase, there are two components. You've got the instrument that creates the result and the QC process that tells you if the result is okay. And that QC process has never been quality controlled itself. Mm -hmm. I... I was part of EP23A, the CLSI document on risk management, and there's a statement in there that says, at the least, the ability of your QC process to detect medically allowable error should be evaluated. People don't do that, and they do Things in QC that absolutely invalidate the quality control. The studies I've done with real data for ACC posters show that 30%, and it's always around 30% or more, of the QC that people are doing in hospital labs could be thrown down the drain because the way they've set up the QC process, it would never, ever detect a failure. That's a little scary to think about, actually. Isn't it just? You know what yeah. they do, Dennis, is they expand the standard deviation. We're, we're getting too many, you know, they, they're so worried about false positives that they double the standard deviation. So, and I, I remember talking with Dr. Westgard when I was down there in 1990. We had just gotten precision standards from our, from our proficiency testing program. And I said to him, you know, I'm using my proficiency testing standards in my daily QC. What do you think of that? And he said, I think that's dangerous. And I remember my jaw hitting the pavement and saying, you know, or thinking, you know, I sure don't want to be doing anything that Westgard thinks is dangerous. But what he said is what you're doing is you're turning a 1.3S into a 1.6S. And nobody knows the error detection of that 1.6S. So you think you're flagging at 1.2S or 1.3S, but you're actually waiting for 1.4S or 6S. And 30% of the QC that people were doing would never detect a clinically significant failure. So I started years ago modeling a shift in the QC. So I would draw, you know, 40 points with, with the QC where it is now and then simulate a shift and say, will the QC detect it? And that goes back. You could teach people how to create Westgard's power function graphs. You could create a shift of 1, 2, 3, 4 SD. You could create a shift to cause 5% of results to fail. You could do whatever you wanted and see how the QC behaved. Now, is this what led you then to the... um the more quality system, so more is mathematically optimized risk evaluation. Is, yes. is that where this led? Yes, that has evolved over years and years and years and, and you know, continues to evolve with every little thing that I learn, but especially was influenced by EP23A with risk evaluation. 
And one of the things they say is, you know, risk is the combination of the probability and severity of harm. Well, you can measure the probability by calculating how many results do I think will fail, but how do you measure the severity of harm? And I thought, well, and I read a a study done by NIST in Mayo where they looked back at 89,000 patient charts and said, if the calcium level was this, what test did the doctor order and what did it cost for healthcare? And so you can say that as the error in your, in your patient result increases, so does the cost of follow-up treatment and pro- procedures. Okay. We started saying, as long as you're within total allowable error, you're fine. But that doesn't make sense. You don't go from being fine at 10.0 to costing $100 in error at 10.1. So we were able to model how the cost increases with the size of error and then discovered that the cost of error is in no way proportional to sigma. You can have a Six Sigma method that is centered around the the true value, and it has an average, well, it has a median cost, extra, extra cost of error of zero, but the average cost of error is halfway out on each side of that curve. Uh, boy, that would go a lot better with a diagram. But as you stray from the true value, the cost increases. So your average cost of error might be $20 if there's zero bias. And if you have a 50% bias, that cost could go up to $55. So if you're only looking at sigma, you're not getting any estimate of cost. Then we got to saying, well, if we can attribute healthcare costs to lab error, and then we can reduce lab error, you can reduce healthcare costs. Now we've developed this software that you submit your data originally, just the mean, the SD, your your monthly summary data. There's nothing tricky about it, except you're also adding in your acceptable risk standards. I want this method to produce results less than $40 per reported result. And I don't ever want to report more than one medically unreliable result per year. And we can tell you, if you meet those criteria, if you're close to failing those criteria, what you need to do to fix those criteria, and how much money you will save if you do it. And that's the really cool part that we've just added. We automatically model which methods need to be improved. And then how much money you can, you can save in healthcare costs. And all you have to do is take the identified methods, improve the bias to the average of the peers, and improve the SD to the average of the peers that are meeting your quality standards. And if you do that, the cost savings were in the realm of $3 per patient result for calcium and $4 for glucose. And those are the only ones I've modeled so far. Three to $4 per test? Per patient result. Okay. Times 10 billion patient results in the USA per year. Wow. So 30 to $40 billion potentially, if I'm right, and uh, you know, I model things, model things, model things. I keep trying to prove myself wrong. If I'm right, you can save thirty to forty billion dollars in USA healthcare simply by following this process to reduce lab error. That that's amazing. Now, all right. So you're talking about money and talking about cost savings and things like that. Now, are people starting to listen to that? We are at that wonderful stage. I don't know if you've, I, I, I listened to a thing once that said to, to make a change or to start a movement, 
the most important person is the second man in. And they showed a crowd and one guy jumps to the center and says, hey, let's go do this. But it's mm-hmm. not till the second man joins them and says, yeah, I'm with you. So we're at that stage now. We are just now releasing this for pilot testing. And once we have those new people come in, and maybe they're listening to this podcast today, and say, I will test this system. I will prove the cost savings in my setting. I will publish the results. And I will help you take this to reality. All right. So this leads to, to, the, to the the company called Awesome Numbers, right. which is you started in 2008, I believe. Yes. And this is the company that you you formed in order to use this system. Is that right? Exactly. It, it as everything, evolved. Um, Raymond Gertz is the, the brilliant software programmer. I think of things and Ray makes them into a software program. Um, he's done things where, you know, his programmers tell him you can't do that, but he does it anyway. So how we met in 2008, I had tried to develop this, Dennis. I had been through one or two different companies. I was working with a young programmer as a partner once, and he walked into my house and he said, you're probably going to hate me for this, but I'm stealing everything. And he literally stole everything. And I lost everything. So I got a little jaded in the lab tech. Well, I still loved lab technology. I felt so guilty for bringing that horrid man into this profession that I love. Anyway, I had sort of been out of the profession. I was volunteering in things and just working part-time. And in 2008, in in the meantime, I mentioned I live on a 500-acre farm. I'm a horse lover. So working with our horses, I happened to invent a bitless bridle for horses, where you can ride your horse without putting that horrible steel thing in the horse's mouth. And oh, it, okay. it, it was really cool. And it went on to now I see them in movies. I see them on the Grand Prix show jumping circuit. I get letters from people saying my daughter has her pony back. It was amazing. And I was at the Royal Winter Fair in Toronto selling horse bridles. And Raymond was in the booth opposite me helping his brother-in-law sell bear-proof garbage cans. <laughs> And in the evenings when it was quiet, we said, what do you do when you're not here? He says, I design QC software. I said, really? I'll bring you in what I've got and take a look at it. So he looked at it and his he just was like, wow, I've never seen anything like this before. And we decided to work together. I said, I've tried before to bring it to market. Let's see if we can do it together. And he has been working with me ever since to develop, evolve. We started with a very complicated system that sort of mirrored what I did with the six hospitals up north, but required my level of understanding. So we had to make it simpler, 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 and then bring in the new technology. So now what we have is a software that has different dashboards for the C-suite, which will tell them, How much money am I spending? How much money can I save? And, you know, what labs are doing well? And you can look at their labs by groups and get a really high-level picture. And it goes down through the lab director to the quality manager to the lab manager to the supervisor right to the frontline tech to just say, this method has a problem with precision and this is what you need to do to fix it. Okay, that's interesting. You you not only identify the problem, but also the solution, which I imagine makes it easier to to implement the solution. Then, you know, it was computers to a way that in a way that created the problems we have today in quality control. They mm-hmm. made it so easy for people to expand their SDs or put in the wrong mean or think they're doing this or think they're doing that. And computers allow people to drive. What you need to do is take the expertise required to create a valid QC process, 
put it inside the computer, prove to them. So we model the QC as they're doing it now and what we would recommend and show them that what you're doing now would never detect error. If you do this, you will detect the error. And this modeling program, this is Catalyst QC. This is Catalyst QC. It it brings to life, I had the, the privilege in 1993 of hearing Edward Deming speak at an AACC conference. Mm, and okay. he, he talked about a managed system where everybody works towards the uh, one clear common goal. So what this does is it lets, it lets the lab director sets the goal, says, in this setting, this amount of error would create a medically unreliable result. So this is the definition. This is acceptable error up to here. It's unacceptable if it's medically unreliable. And I'm willing to allow for this test in this setting one medically unreliable result per year or 1%, but okay. not three sigma. That doesn't make sense. So as long as you, everybody knows this is the medical goal, this is the acceptable number of errors, this is the acceptable cost of errors, and the whole system drives towards meeting those goals. So you've got this system now and you know with all the modeling you've been doing it looks like it's it works and and you're you're uh generating data and results what what is it going to take to kind of spread the word about this it takes people to get in touch with me and say i would like to be a model site i would like to be a test site and i want to you know model this you can do it you know in parallel with your qc we, you know, we have had labs that have sort of said they'd send data, but nobody's had the, has yet sent in the data that we need and proceeded towards the publication. So we've got to do the studies, not only for the scientific value, but to make sure how does this software work within your system, you know, within your processes, within your hospital, within your culture. You know, how do we need to, can we tweak these reports? What do you want to know? We can, we can slice and dice them any way you want to give you what you need to know to work together with the goal of saving healthcare dollars, improving healthcare by reducing the number of errors reported. So if I'm right, we can significantly reduce patient harm and save healthcare dollars. And, you know, that would be a very, very good thing. But the next thing that we need is the people to step up and say, I will try this. I will prove it. I will testify that this is something good. Okay. And I, and I will definitely include uh, in the show notes to this episode, I'll include links to, to you, to your, to uh, awesome numbers, to the work that you've been doing so that if there is someone out there who wants to be a test site, they can get in touch with you. This, this is really interesting stuff. I mean, you're talking about reducing costs. You're talking about making the QC rather than just something you, you have to record to make it actually patient focused, which, which I think is really important. Thank you. Yes, it, it is. It's worth doing. I've been telling people about this since the year 2000, and I thought people would say, you know, wow, let's do this. But they say, I'm off busy doing something else. So I thought, well, if it is to be, it's up to me. So I have kept going with it because this should happen. Imagine the difference in developing countries. If you could just automate your quality control, because people are not well taught. They cannot be well taught, not in the time they have available. Mm -hmm. So if you can put this in every lab so that every lab is performing verified, effective QC, all I'm doing is following the regulations. Uh, I'm just completing an article for pathologyoutlines.org. Uh, and sure. uh, it goes through, you know, I just, you know, bring out the regulations. You define medical limits. You define acceptable probability and severity of risk. Develop your QC program. Verify your QC program. And if QC detects a problem, stop and fix it. 
don't do more QC, stop and fix the method. <laughs> right. This is really fascinating. Uh, Zoe, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast today and, you know, talking about all these things, talking about your career and the work you're doing, which I think is really important. And I will certainly help to spread the word about it. So Zoe Brooks, thank you very much. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. And thank you for spreading the word. Great big thanks to Zoe Brooks. Next week, I'll be speaking with Dr. Susie Lishman, who, among many other things, is also the past president of the Royal College of Pathologists. Here's a short preview, and then I'll be back with some final comments on this episode. So although I didn't completely rule obstetrics out, I did realize that my view of it as a medical student perhaps didn't quite reflect what it would like be like to do that as a doctor. So I tried to keep an open mind. Um, but yes, yeah, certainly that was, that was the first specialty that I really fell in love with. I also found um, while doing that, and I suppose while doing most of my different rotations, I was really interested in, in the science behind it. So when obstetrics, I was interested in the tests that pregnant women had, uh, how rhesus blood groups worked, for example, or what chorionic villus sampling meant, um, mm-hmm. and, and the value of neonatal screening. And so all of those things, and at the time I didn't realize that was all pathology, but it all sort of came together for me a bit later on um, in my journey. And I realized that what I actually loved was understanding the science and the reason why things happened. So this was a very interesting conversation with Zoe. And even though some of the advanced statistical concepts she was talking about are a bit outside my scope of knowledge, I really feel like I learned something from her and it seems like she's really onto something. So if you're interested in learning more from her, collaborating with her, or being a test site for Catalyst QC, go to the show notes. You can find links to Zoe, and also she's on LinkedIn as well. You can find her there. Last week, I had the opportunity to go to the American Association of Pathologist Assistants Fall Conference out in Seattle, Washington. And while I was there, I got to see Dr. Jeremy Lee, Dr. Melissa Upton, and Dr. Nicole Jackson, as well as my very own sister, Susan, who happens to live out there. So that was a lot of fun to catch up with all of them. Also, I participated in an advocacy panel with Sarah Garner and Courtney Highland, and that was moderated by Michael Schubert from The Pathologist, who also presented a talk at the conference as well. So it's great to be there. It was great to be involved, and it's really nice to be back at live meetings again. Don't forget, you can follow this show on Twitter and Instagram at People of Path or connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you for continuing to share the show with others, and together let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being, and you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.